The following podcast may contain adult language and conversations revolving around situations not suitable for immature audiences. Spoilers and general political incorrectness can often be expected, so listener discretion is advised. They must be destroyed on sight! Welcome to another episode of the Must Be Destroyed on Site. I'm your host, Lee Russell, with my co-host, Daniel Harper. How you doing, sir? Doing well. Awesome. Having uh, me, as always. Yeah. We are now on part five of our sex comedy series. We're going a long way here, and you've already got your uh, Kevin Smith hat on. I'm wearing a backwards hat for the uh, Kevin Smithiness of it all. Actually, your, your, your beard is pretty much coming right into Kevin Smith uh, territory again. You should screenshot this so that uh, you can put a photo up or something. <laughs> well, let's we'll see here. Print screen. <laughs> uh, let's see. Print screen. There we go. Now, if I remember to save that in paint later on. All right. Um, so if you hadn't guessed, we are going to be talking about Kevin Smith films uh, this time around. Um, it's kind of interesting because when we were talking about this, um, I initially thought Kevin Smith really doesn't necessarily do sex comedies in in the in the in the vein of sex the sex comedies we've been talking about so far. So it's definitely an interesting uh, little comparison to put these to uh, the other movies we've been talking about because he's his stuff is much more well i don't know i i I guess in some ways much more mature well i feel like kevin smith is the kind of logical extension in a lot of ways of what we've been talking about you know he doesn't really do nudity in his films as in uh zach and mary make a porno has some nudity in it there are a couple of small scenes in mall rat you know of of kind of brief you know blinking you miss it kind of nudity and then the the fortune teller character um yeah you know, it's kind of a plot point. But other than that, he really doesn't do nudity in his films. But, uh, you know, we're going to talk about Chasing Amy tonight. And, and Chasing Amy was threatened with an NC-17 rating in 1997 just for language. And So was, uh, so was Clerks. So was Clerks, yeah. Um, he has he kind of died, uh, fought controversy over uh, language and explicit content all his life. And, you know, if you think about the literal meaning of the term sex comedy, it's a comedy about sex. And I feel like... Kevin Smith does a lot of the the kind of stuff that these the you know kind of I don't want to say elevates the material but definitely kind of takes these like comedies about relationships and about the hijinks that people get into and it turns it into kind of higher art kind of higher material um in the sense of like actually looking at the kinds of tropes that you find in these kinds of other films. And a lot of the same way that like uh in the 70s you know I often think of Kevin Smith with Woody Allen Mm-hmm. Um, Woody Allen in the seventies with like Annie Hall was kind of looking at romantic comedy tropes and kind of what, what sex was like in the seventies and kind of did a, did a kind of artsy version of that. Yeah. And I think, um, Kevin Smith kind of was doing that, um, particularly when we get to chasing Amy, I think that Annie Hall and chasing Amy here, there are a lot of parallels, um, both structurally and, you know, just in terms of the, their place in the culture. Um, and now we're almost 20 years out from that, which yeah. makes me again feel old. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm getting into a little bit of the the content of our of our conversation here, but I feel like I feel like that these I feel like that when you talk about a genre, you know, if you talk about film noir, film noir over 70 years of cinema since it was created, 80 years of cinema, has been a lot of different things. And if you want to yeah. talk about that genre, you kind of have to talk about 
all of it together, unless you specifically want to restrict yourself. But I think that it's more interesting to kind of say, okay, we're going to talk about sex comedies. We're also going to talk about the shitty direct-to-video things like Busty Cops, um, which don't (laughs) even deserve the term comedy or sex matter. Um, But we're also going to kind of talk a little bit about some of the other stuff. I mean, I think that it, it, it adds a little bit more interest to it. And um, I have in the past, uh, certainly in the past, been a a huge Kevin Smith fan. Um, I think we'll get into that a little bit more, but um, so that's why I wanted to talk about these in this, in this month. So uh, apologies to anybody who wanted to, wanted to talk about titty flicks again. Uh, We're (laughs) we're, we're moving away from that just a little bit. Yeah. But I'm, I'm glad you suggested them. Um, I'll just put a little um, disclaimer on, on this one. We're not, we're not going to go super into detail about these films Except for except for maybe chasing Amy because that might be one where where it, it kind of stands alone and apart from a lot of his other films. So that might be one to talk about a lot more. But I mean, we were we were talking off air before we started this that we we probably could do just separate full episodes on all three of these films separately. Um, right. There there is so much going on. Like he just he makes so much connections in his view askew averse or whatever for his different films that uh, we could just sit here listing off trivia and bullshit like that for ages. But um, yeah, th- there is one bit of trivia. I know I'm going to talk about from chasing Amy, um, but other than that, I'm going to try to leave the trivia uh, off the table today mm-hmm. because there's one particular thing that I think is just really funny. If you're familiar with the Kevin Smith uh, universe or at least the view universe, but um, other than that, I'll, I'll get there when I get there. But yeah. there is one particular bit of uh, clever trivia that's that's pretty fun. First thing we're going to do is we're going to uh, delve right into a little game we've been playing now for a couple episodes. Uh, it's real fun. Movie God. I give Daniel two options, uh, either two actors, two directors, two film composers, something to do with film. And he must eliminate one or the other. And once that is eliminated from the timeline... Anything that comes after it is also eliminated, so you're supposed to make a hard decision, a hard choice that's going to be near and dear to your heart, and Daniel will also ask something similar of me. This time around, and uh, I'll be quite honest, I didn't put a lot of thought into this one. This one just is one of the like sort of stock ones that uh, <laughs> immediately came to my mind that's probably been asked a million times. You are movie god, Daniel, and you must eliminate either Arnold Schwarzenegger or Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> that's uh that my immediate thought is well i just like schwarzenegger's movies more um mm-hmm. as the the kind of meathead action hero the terminator franchise well the first two films in the terminator franchise are classics and killing a schwarzenegger probably means i mean then again maybe oj simpson will be the terminator and you know who knows how that would change reality you know maybe he wouldn't have killed those people if he you know had the terminator <laughs> ready to get back on who knows we might be able to actually save somebody's life here but um no uh then you, then i forget like stallone was a you know is an accomplished like screenwriter and director as well mm-hmm. um in terms of rocky um man uh that i mean it's a little bit tougher than I would think it would be just kind of when you first say the words. If you kill Schwarzenegger, you kill like that. There are so many of the comedic roles, like Twins, for instance, or mm-hmm. Kindergarten Cop, that have been that were such a part of my childhood growing up. Stallone was less a part of my personal childhood, but I think his overall, he's had maybe a more interesting career, in, at least his early career. Yeah. Then again, if you kill Rocky, Taxi Driver probably wins Best Picture. So uh, there is, or a deer hunter might have beat taxi driver. 
I'd say Deer Hunter probably would have. Yeah. I mean, a, a lot of people say, you know, in the seventies, uh, Oh, it was it was the era of movies like Taxi Driver and stuff like that. But no, it was really still the era of the blockbuster sort of coming in. It was it was more those movies were more the popular films. It's like the the other movies gained more critical popularity like 10, 20 years afterwards. Right. I mean, it, it kind of became this uh, kind of golden age later. I think that people mm-hmm. kind, of kind of looked back on it and saw, wow, look at all these amazing movies. Something like the early the early to mid nineties. How. I think at the time, you know, people kind of knew they were living through this thing, but I don't think that, the, you know, people realized until like a few years later, like, oh, this was like a temporary thing that only really happened for like six or seven years. Yeah. And I'm talking because I really can't decide which one I'm going to kill just because, you know, you get kind of good good and bad with both. Um, I think if you made me kill one, I'd kill Stallone. Okay. Um, I'd kill Rocky. I'd kill the Rambo franchise. I mean, the Rambo franchise is his. Like that was, you know, he was front and center on that i think that honestly just for my own personal preferences i just i have a hard time killing schwarzenegger in the terminator franchise and i have a hard time killing him because he did do some pretty funny uh comedy work later in the uh in the 90s and stuff and uh Stallone just means a little bit less to me, um, yeah. and and uh, that's just it, you know it, sometimes it does just come down to a to a personal preference of like I would just rather I think you'd have still gotten a lot of great seventies movies um, without Stallone, but I think that the the eighties fun goofy action franchises kind of depend on Schwarzenegger a little bit more. Um, yeah. You do lose Tango and Cash, but um, I'll, I'll, <laughs> win, I'll win without Tango and Cash. Um, yeah, uh, that, that's a good that's a good choice. Uh, yeah, Schwarzenegger's you, you can argue Schwarzenegger's action films really that was his decade in the eighties. Like he his you could argue his stuff was better. Although uh, I, I will say, going back to a few episodes ago where we were talking about uh, Lance Hendrickson, um, if you eliminated Schwarzenegger, Lance Hendrickson would have been the Terminator. He, no. he was he was the first choice for that role apparently. So. Uh, you you could have had a Terminator franchise with Lance Hendrickson as as the Terminator. That that I did not know that bit of trivia. That is really interesting. I would uh, again. It, it feels like that would have been more the uh, kind of the the T one thousand idea. You know, in eighty four, like like to kind of bring that that more um, sleek. You know, yeah. physique well, to, the, to the Terminator. It makes you wonder if, if Terminator Two would like feature some big, bulky uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger type Terminator coming back to to fight the original Terminator. Yeah, probably. I, I think that you know, one day we have to sit down and watch at least Terminator One and Two. We need to do those two for for one of these um, podcasts because if you look at the original Terminator, it's a like it's a it's a slasher film. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a horror film. Just instead of it being like a zombie or a vampire or whatever, it's this mechanical man from the future, you know. Yeah. T two is for me the like that's one of those defining moments in my childhood. I was eleven years old when that came out. We bought that on VHS, and I wore that tape out, man. I I watched that thing probably a hundred times growing up. It's one of those like I have it ingrained in my memory. Yeah. You know. And I think really, like you asked me, who I can't kill Schwarzenegger because I just love that movie so much, and I don't know that without Schwarzenegger, that franchise would have gone in that direction. So you know, I, you can forget everything that happened after. I have no care for Terminator Genesis. I don't care yeah, at all. Like this is something I, I'm. I you can go fuck itself. But um, yeah, I, I saw that trailer, and it looks like a bad. Video I didn't even watch trailer. the trailer. I literally was like, I'm done. I'm I'm done. Like this this franchise means nothing to me anymore. So you know, mm. that's what I got. Yeah, good choice, good choice. All right, Daniel, we can 
lay it on me. All right, and I'm going to ask you another interesting one. Um, this time, I don't think it's going to be hard for you to kill one or the other, but I'm just interested to see. Um, sometimes I think it's fun to do one where you get to kill something and then change the course of future movie history in a good way, and I want to see which way you're going to go. So okay. you have to kill one or the other. All right. Independence Day from 96. Okay. Or Armageddon. Independence Day or Armageddon. Wow. Okay, so Armageddon, that was the sort of small little window where there was like really big disaster films from space. I guess maybe there was only like two films. It was that one and then Deep Impact. Deep was Impact. One. They both came out within like weeks of each other. And Deep Impact was a way better movie. Yeah, uh, no, Deep Impact was, is the better film. Yeah. You you eliminate Armageddon, that had the more that had more star power behind it. Uh, that had the more sort of carbon copy adventure storyline with uh, heroic American actors going into space to save the world and all that bullshit. Fuck. I'm basically asking you to fundamentally change Jerry Bruckheimer's career or to fundamentally change Dean Devlin's career. The guy yeah. Who, you know, did uh, Independence Day. So after Stargate, what would, what would those guys have made, Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin, if not for... Would they have had a better career, or would they have made better movies, or would they have just kind of gone on and done kind of the same shit? I can't see. I can't see Roland Emmerich making good movies, no matter what happens. <laughs> uh, okay, so take take away Armageddon, you get Deep Impact. Deep Impact might have influenced smarter sci-fi disaster movies. You know, maybe with a little bit more science behind them, a little less uh, bravado and bullshit. You eliminate uh, Independence Day. That was sort of the modern, one of the modern sort of blockbusters. A big launching point for Will Smith's career. I mean... That was kind of the moment for Will Smith. Like, yeah. Interestingly here, like uh, Armageddon is kind of the, the, the launch pad for Ben Affleck as an action star, in a way. Right, right. And uh, Independence Day is kind of the launch pad for Will Smith, which is another kind of interesting thing, like... You know, yeah. Would these guys have gone on and done more kind of interesting uh, acting roles if they didn't have the the big temple release that set them up? I mean, kill Independence Day, and you basically—I don't know that Will Smith becomes an action star without Independence Day. Yeah, and that's making me think I want to kill Independence Day because as much as like when I first saw Independence Day and I liked Will Smith in the role, I was like kind of laughing along with him when he was like punching the crap out of an alien in the desert and shit. And I was like, now that I think about it, okay, that he went on from this to do like wild, wild West mm-hmm. and fucking the really bad version of, uh, last man on earth or I am legend, whatever you want to call it. I guess he did do men in black, but then of course he also did men in black two and three. Right. Uh, right. And he also had his son, Jaden Smith, and his star power allowed Jaden Smith to get movie roles. Yeah, th- this would have been an easier uh, question to ask, you know, 10 years ago. Yeah. Before Will Smith had kind of, like, tarnished his reputation to such a degree. Uh, you know what? I, as much as I sort of like Independence Day, I generally hate the way the movies have gone because of Independence Day. I mean... That that sort of movie also sort of opened up more Michael Bay style big budget shit like Transformers and garbage like that, 
and I fucking hate that stuff. I, I hate it so much. You know what? I, I think I would get rid of Independence Day because Armageddon's kind of, um, to me, like more of a footnote in movie history than right. a big influencer. Independence Day, I think, had a lot more influence in the way box office films were made in the in the next decade or so. So I, I'd say I'd say kill Independence Day, kill Will Smith, kill his son. I'm not advocating child murder, by the way. Well, maybe I am, but um, we're removing yeah. their careers, not the person themselves. Like you know, Will Smith went on; he he became a uh, he he had a long and illustrious career doing the stage acting, but never made a movie. No, no, he 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 reunited with DJ Jazz, Jazzy Jeff, and they went on to make some more party albums. That's a good future. I I, I would like that. Yeah. <laughs> I want to see what those guys did in like the gangster rap era. That would be interesting. You think he'd throw? You think he'd throw, you think he'd throw uh, Jazzy Jeff some movie roles? So you know. Yeah, yeah, no. I, make, I, make him zomb- Make him uh, vampire number three in I Am Legend make, or whatever. Maybe they do like a hustle and flow, like mm-hmm. a hustle and flow cut type movie with the two of them. You know. Or they make they remake uh, House Party as kid and play. <laughs> nice, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Independence Day has to go. I have to kill Independence Day. That's no question. Nice choice. Nice choice. Uh, again, interestingly, uh, just because we're we're getting into this, I I was I had Armageddon on the brain because uh, Armageddon was kind of the first movie that Ben Affleck did after Chasing Amy, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> when they were recording things like the director's commentary for the for the then Laserdisc, which then became a DVD of Chasing Amy, mm-hmm. uh, Ben Affleck was just like coming off the set from Armageddon, like literally <laughs> in that in that time frame, and I. Um, know that because I've listened to that director's commentary a bunch, so uh, that's probably why I had it on the brain. Like, oh yeah, what and if you kill me, Armageddon? You know? and, and let me guess, Smith and them were probably joking about how uh, they weren't probably going to be talking to Ben Affleck anymore in a, in a very soon. Oh, and, oh yes, oh yes, very much, <laughs> and, that, very and, and that came to fruition very quickly. <laughs> um, I checked on Amazon; you can now buy the Criterion uh, Chasing Amy DVD for like f- for literally five dollars right now. Oh really? Um, and uh, I couldn't find my DVD. It's also streaming on Netflix. So mm-hmm. I, when I rewatched it for this podcast, I did watch it that way. Yep. Um, it's literally one of those discs that was a flipper disc. If you you know, maybe the, yeah. the younger listeners don't even remember what the flippers were, but it's a flipper. Uh, I'm probably going to rebuy that just for five dollars. It's probably worth throwing five dollars that way just to to own that to make sure I have a copy of it and didn't loan it out to somebody and never got it back. Um, just for the special features on that disc, um, including that commentary, which is uh, fascinating, and which, again, I think I'm going to get into a little bit when we talk about Chasing Amy. So that's cool because most usually when you go looking for old Criterion discs, especially DVDs, they're upwards of fifty dollars or more. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I checked it. Uh, I checked it just uh, uh, yesterday, just last night. I was looking at it, um, and I, I think it was five dollars. So you know. Um, <laughs> now, Sweet. listeners, don't don't buy that until I have a chance to buy one. So, um, you know, <laughs> create a rush on the uh, the chasing Amy discs. It's thousands of people going and trying to buy it well, immediately. And well, that's price. that's all right. Uh, going going by our numbers so far for our uh, audience, you'll you'll only be competing with maybe four people. So that's all right. It'll really just be Paul. I'm competing. It'll with. be Paul and two of his sock accounts, and I don't think he's going to be buying any. Kevin Smith films anytime soon. Yeah. So. There's a reason he's not on this podcast today, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, we should move on to uh, what we've uh, watched in the last week or so. So I know you've got a couple things, Daniel. So I'll let you go first. 
Sure. Um, the big one that I think is uh, interesting is we actually did. Um, so I, I mentioned last week uh, on the podcast or last episode, we were, um, my wife and I were talking about going to see the Avengers. Mm-hmm. And we are, we're kind of uh, low on funds, and we kind of decided we only had money to see one movie this pay period. And the reviews in the Avengers were not that great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it will be still be in theaters in two weeks. Mm-hmm. So we said, you know what? Um, let's go see X Machina instead. Um, cool. X Machina, uh, I literally just saw the title. I saw the general premise and went, I don't want to know anything more about it. I, so I, I walked in blind. Um, I would highly recommend Walking in Blind. I think it's a um, really interesting film. Shana liked it a little less than I did. Um, Structurally, she had some other issues with it. Uh, Sorry, Shana, my wife, for audience that may not know who I'm talking about. But uh, my wife uh, didn't like it as much as I did. Thought it was really interesting. She thought the ending didn't quite stick. Um, I think the ending was exactly what it needed to be. So... um, you know, it's a, it's a film about artificial intelligence. I'm I'm really not saying anything about the plot or the story of the characters because I think um, if you are listening to this podcast and you don't know what the movie is, um, it's worth going to see regardless. I, I think you should you should definitely check it out and know as little as possible about it. Um, but a really interesting film, very thoughtful about um, artificial intelligence and what that means, and uh, has a, a lot of really interesting interesting representational issues for. Um, uh, the way that we treat women in cinema, honestly. So, um, really, if you see this, Lee, we should definitely talk about it uh, in cool. detail on the podcast. Um, yeah, I, I intend to see it. I, I was I was definitely interested in, in seeing it at some point. It's, so. it's actually the directorial debut of Andrew McDonald, something like that. He was a screenwriter 28 Days Later. Oh, and okay. a bunch of the other... Um, I might have his name wrong. I don't have it in front of me, so I apologize. But uh, the screenwriter of 28 Days Later and a bunch of Danny Boyle's early films. And he is now directing. And uh, it's definitely a, a very assured directorial debut. I'll just say that. Um, definitely worth checking it out. Uh, see, so yeah, Andrew McDonald. Yep. Wow, I had the name right. Yeah, you can uh, edit well, out all my... No, um, is it Andrew McDonald or Alex Garland? Alex Garland, Alex or... Garland is the director... No, uh, Alex Garland uh, wrote 28 Days Later. Okay, it's... Uh, Andrew McDonald produced the film. Oh, it's Alex Garland then. Excuse oh, okay. Me. I got the names confused. Anything yeah, else? anyway, I uh, saw that one theatrically. Definitely worth it. Um, the other thing is uh, we cut the cable this week where uh, we just decided to stop paying $80 a month to a cable provider to uh, feed us bullshit television. Mm-hmm. And um, meaning that I've been going through my DVD collection, just kind of throwing them on as just something to have on during the day or, you know, before bad. And so I've watched a lot of the old movies that I just own on DVD. Glorious Bastards, I rewatched that this week. I actually uh, rewatched uh, Empire Records, which I hadn't seen in a long oh, time. Oh, wow. Partly because I was thinking about recommending it for this podcast, uh, and partly because it's kind of a companion. It's sort of like when right after Clerks, they decided to remake Clerks with more money. Yeah. And they called it Empire Records. And uh, it's a very different film uh, than Clerks, but... Uh, Definitely uh, interesting. Um, it's very much that slice of that slice of a moment in the mid '90s when that was like the coolest thing in the world. Again, Shana kind of grew up with that. Like she was, I think, ten when that came out, ten or eleven when that came out. I was a little bit older. No, that came out in '96 or so. Anyway, she was she was young. She was young enough for it to be like a very 
formative influence on her life. Um, she's like, you know, she was rewatching it with me and she says, uh, you know, how did, how did I not know things about myself at that time? Because I'm attracted to every single person in this movie. And I'm like, yes, I know exactly why it's, it's a bit of cheesy fun. It's worth rewatching if you're uh, going to um, sit down and, and watch a DVD sometime soon. Um, and the only other one, uh, just because I watched it last night and it's a lot of fun, I rewatched The Incredibles. Um, oh, yeah. The, the 2004 Brad Bird uh, directorial debut. And, or not debut, sorry, Iron Giant was first. But um, his his kind of big thing with Pixar. Uh, that is really worth a revisit. That is such a great film. It is. I love that film a lot, yeah. But uh, I watched more than that, but those are the three I wanted to, to, to bring up. So Cool. Right on. Uh, the only thing I really watched, uh, other than the films for uh, the podcast uh, this week, I was just sort of trolling Netflix because I was bored, and I found Joyride 3, and I, I like the original Joyride. Uh, I saw Joyride 2, which I wasn't all that fond of, and this was actually, surprisingly enough, not too bad. It was for a low-budget sort of direct-to-video or VOD kind of Film uh, had fairly good production. The story was a little bit better. The acting was a little bit better than what you might have expected. Although, um, essentially, it sort of ruins the whole uh, Rusty Nails uh, character from the first film because you see and hear way too much of him. He just sort of turns him into a typical slasher villain instead of uh, this uh, this sort of mysterious killer that you don't see more in the sort of... Uh, uh, mold of uh, duel or whatever, where you know you, that un, that faceless truck driver that you never see in that film. So, but it, it was it was decent. It was actually worth checking out. It was, it was just one of those ones where you see on Netflix where you usually have second thoughts. You're like, eh, I don't really need to see this garbage. But uh, I mean, if, if you if you got a lazy night on Netflix um, and you like the first Joyride, it's actually kind of worth seeing. So, yeah. Kind of worth seeing a, a, a ringing endorsement from <laughs> uh, You could do a lot worse. Like, there's so much garbage on Netflix that um, this was actually slightly better. And trivia note uh, the guy who plays uh, Rusty Nails uh, in this one, he actually played uh, Jason in Freddy vs. Jason from a few years back. Although, sadly, it doesn't have uh, what's his name? Um, is it Ted Levine, I think, did the voice for Rusty Nails in the first film? Very distinctive voice. What's and, funny is I know him. Uh, I know that actor from Monk, if you know that TV show. Yeah, yeah, that's that's um, him. That's him. I, I always I always think of him from Heat as one of the secondary cops who gets... Oh, is he in Heat? Wow. And, he, and of course, he's also in Silence of the Lambs as the killer. There, right, so, right, yeah. right. But uh, yeah, um, he, they, uh, I, I believe it was him. I'm, I'm convinced it was him. I don't know if they credited him or not in the first Joyride, but uh, I'm pretty sure it was his voice they used. They used a different actor for the actual role of the character when you see him in the film, but um, but they use his voice on the CB. Uh, I still remember, you know, he, he's just taunting, taunting his victims uh, over the CB. Candy cane, candy cane, where are you? But uh, so, awesome. so yeah, so uh, Joyride three, ring an endorsement for that one. You know, if yeah. you're bored, bored out of your skull, <laughs> or or you could go see Ex Machina uh, in theaters. Yeah, if you that are, might be uh, your that might be a better option if you don't mind spending the the ten dollars or whatever it costs you to go see a movie these days. <laughs> Hello, this is Guillermo del Toro. When I'm not making movies about bugs, monsters, fawns, monsters fighting giant robots, bugs, and fawns, I'm listening to the Must Be Destroyed on Sight a Movie podcast. 
All right. Uh, so I guess we'll uh, move on to the movies. We are going to start with 1994's Clerks, written and directed by Kevin Smith, uh, starring Brian O'Hallorhan as Dante Hicks, Jeff Anderson as Randall Graves, Marilyn Gigliotti, Gigliotti as Veronica Loughran. I actually know all these characters, all these actors' names. You know, awesome. That's good because uh, I'll probably screw more of them up. Uh, Lisa Spoonhauer. Oh, that's quite the name. Uh, as Caitlin Green, yeah. and of course Jason Mewes and Kevin Smith as Jay and Silent Bob. You could you could go into exquisite detail of the importance of this film, but uh, I don't know if we necessarily need to do that for anybody. <laughs> if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already kind of know who Kevin Smith is, and you probably have developed an opinion one way or the other about mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah, it's the uh, day in the life of a couple of slackers who work in a convenience store and a video store respectively. Yep. And it, and it essentially revolves around uh, uh, Brian O'Halloran's uh, character, Dante, who, by all respects, is kind of a loser, but in, a, in another respect, he's sort of, he doesn't know how well he has it because he's constantly juggling women. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and he's, so basically what he's, what he's doing here is he's trying to decide whether to stick with his current girlfriend or uh, get back with his old flame who he's heard um, is getting engaged and he's basically stressing over that while working on his day off because he got called in because no one was available and uh, and although the movie essentially kind of more focuses on um, the day-to-day life of someone working a retail job and, and sort of vignettes of weird characters that Kevin Smith himself experienced while working that very job in that very location it really it really does uh, have an underlying sort of sex comedy thing going down about relationships uh, i'll let you uh, start with any thoughts on this dan sure um again we all kind of all know the lore i think um although i don't know how i don't know how much younger listeners you know if you if you didn't kind of live through this area of film i don't know how much you you kind of like know maybe you know kevin smith more as oh he's that guy who's on the podcast or uh, comic book men are maybe the more modern stuff that he's doing, the more the kind of experimental horror stuff that he's doing. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, Kevin Smith was 23 years old when he made this. He maxed out his credit cards, sold his comic book collection. He made Clerks for $29,000. It shot on 16 millimeter black and white. If you read the the closing credits, one of the credits is the boom operator was whoever grabbed the pole. That's literally <laughs> how the boom operator is credited. There's a famous story about he uh, Kevin Smith was literally working in the convenience store during the day and then shooting this at night, and uh, literally fell asleep from exhaustion during the last take of the film, like it just collapsed. Um, <laughs> you know, be woken for for some time. Um, I think it's worth noting that uh, you know these three films are very deeply autobiographical in terms of Kevin Smith's experience. Um, we'll, we'll kind of I kind of talk about that again, particularly when we get to Amy. I think chasing Amy is very autobiographical in a different way, but this is you know. Kevin Smith casting a guy who kind of looks like him uh, working in the exact job where he works with a friend of his working next door. You know, it's, it's kind of known for, I think today you watch it and it's kind of hard to realize how groundbreaking this was in a lot of ways in 93, 94, just because now we're kind of used to people talking about pop culture and movies and to the degree that that's a cliche and that gets annoying. Like we're, we're kind of moving away from that now, or we've been moving away from that for a while. And like the vernacular of like, oh, making a Star Wars reference in a movie 
or t- kind of talking, doing that kind of metafictional thing, that talking about the, the, the structure, is something that we're just kind of used to in films these days. Yeah. Um, but in, in the early 90s, I mean, starting with, you know, Slacker maybe in 92 and uh, Reservoir Dogs, I mean, this was really, really new at this point. I think the fact that it just kind of seems like a normal movie now is probably a credit <laughs> to the film. You know, it did. Um, I think it's aged well as well. I think that, that Kevin Smith always gets the, uh, you know, knocked for, oh, you make movies that look like crap, you know? And I think Kevin Smith brings a lot of that on himself because he kind of says that. Mm-hmm. And then people just go, yeah, it does look like crap. But, um, you know, I don't think if you were given $29,000 in 1993 to make a film, I don't think that anybody could do that much better than he does, um, than, than they did in this situation. I think that they're constantly changing things like camera angles or constantly shooting things in different ways. You know, it's definitely a, a low budget film, but it's not, it, it looks, it looks good. It looks fine for what it is. And I think if, you can compare it to something that costs, you know, a hundred times as much and expect it to, to add up, you know? Yeah. It kind of, I always felt it kind of had the feel of, um, because they, they chose to do black and white, just, just based purely on the fact that they didn't have enough money for proper lighting. So they, they wanted to eliminate that problem right away. But it, it, it kind of gives you the feel that you're actually at some point, like looking at this through like a video surveillance camera in the actual store. <laughs> right. Just, just to a certain degree. So it, it kind of feels like the viewers looking at these people's lives through that lens almost. Um, so that, I think that wor- that's actually works really well for the films a pretty good strength for it. And Kevin Smith, and of course, this goes back to him shitting on his own movies all the time. He'll he'll readily admit he's not the most gifted cinematographer type guy. You know, I mean, uh, he he has a knack for dialogue that I, I I would even argue in in some respects is better than Quentin Tarantino from the same era. But he definitely does not have the visual flair that Tarantino yeah. has. But he he hides it very well. He doesn't make any pretenses. He doesn't try to go out of his bounds. He knows what he can do. I think the comparison, I mean, and I, again, I think my earlier comparison that I made is very aptly, uh, apologies, (laughs) Um, (laughs) you know, talking about Woody Allen, you know, Woody Allen is also not a, not a filmmaker whose visual style, you know, is not a stylishly visual filmmaker. Mm -hmm. Uh, You don't go to a Woody Allen film because you're, you're interested in like fancy camera moves and, you know, visual style. You're, you're, interested in watching the story and watching the characters and watching uh, and listening to the dialogue. And, and yeah. I think Kevin Smith is definitely that guy. And the fact that he's kind of moved on into being a kind of a podcast guy that, that words are his weapons, words are his, his stock and trade, I think kind of speaks volumes for, you know, kind of what the pleasures of this, of, of these films are. Um, speaking more specifically about clerks, I think it's interesting. A, a 23 year old kid. I mean, like I'm amazed. Like, I first saw Kevin Smith films when I was maybe 16, 17, kind of that time frame in my mm-hmm. life. And, you know, I thought, oh, wow, you know, like 23, year old, 23 years old, that's awesome. You know, now I look back and go, this guy is 23. Like, I remember what I was like when I was 23, and I certainly didn't have the maturity that is shown in this script in terms of, like, relationships and uh, that sort of thing. Um, and, uh Kind of, kind of amazing how uh, how this film just works. I, I think that rewatching again all three of the films, I'm gonna kind of talk about the, you know Kevin Smith in general. I think mm-hmm. really they they work on the structure of having the kind of buddy structure. You know, you've got yeah. this film Dante and Randall, and I think they each represent you know kind of like the conversations they have are conversations that 
Smith has with himself. Like they, they're kind of a split psyche where the kind of the asshole character in this case, Randall is kind of like, he's a jerk. I mean, he's just a jerk to everyone around him. Um, except arguably to Dante, but he's kind of even a jerk to Dante. And he's, he's kind of, he's, he's got his issues, but at the same time, he's grounded in a way that, that Dante is not. And he is uh, aware of his station in life. He's aware of kind of who Mm -hmm. he is. He's more comfortable with who he is. And he's able to kind of dispense the wisdom that I think Dante needs, particularly towards the end, saying like, dude, you've got these two girls. They both want you, but you're afraid of making a decision. You're afraid of going out and getting what you you want out of life. And I think that, uh, you know, when I was younger and first saw these films, I, I maybe I didn't quite get what what was really going on. But as an adult, I definitely see like there's a maturity there to the filmmaker being able to to write those scenes. Yeah, I think when he was writing this, I think he was probably writing this under the assumption that he was probably never going to make another movie again. Right. <laughs> so so he, he he did his damnedest to put basically everything he was thinking and feeling into the script and making it actually work. It's popular now to look at Kevin Smith and, oh, he's the dick and fart joke guy. There's a level of maturity in the writing for clerks that you wouldn't see in a, in a guy his age, in any other guy his age doing this sort of thing. And the decisions that uh, Dante eventually has to make, I mean, the guy's just so clueless. Like, uh, so the, the the guy is almost like, uh, like you're saying, like they're both sort of ha- sides of Kevin Smith's personality, Dante and Randall, and they're almost self-criticisms of probably the way he was at some point in his life, you know, like just uh, how immature I was. Well, well, in terms of, particularly in terms of like uh, sexual maturity, and I, mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about sex comedies. I think you had to talk about the sexual content of these films. You know, we, we have spent uh, the last few weeks kind of looking at titty movies and we can, you know, which are kind of made for the puerile 13 year old and all of us, you know, Oh, look, boobies. You know? mm-hmm. And uh, you know, yay. Yeah. I'm a big fan of that. The, uh, the 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 person of me that wants to see naked flesh is now satiated. This is uh, someone you know when when you have him have a character watch you know chicks with dicks porn, which uh, you know, <laughs> uh, some of this is not aged all that well, but uh, you know this this certainly you know chicks with dicks that put mine to shame. And you have them having really frank and honest conversations about like jizz moppers and really talking about these kind of raunchy, dirty things, but then also talking about what it is actually like to be in your early twenties in this kind of environment where kind of everybody knows everybody else. And you kind of, you know, Oh, I hooked up with her at this party, such and such, you know, kind of talking about your, your sexual escapades and I, Mm -hmm. And not a bravado kind of way, but just in an honest kind of way. Um, yeah, it, it deals it deals with the consequences of sex, and it it and more so it deals with um, Dante's inexperience and his sort of naive way he's been going about relationships. Um, it, it's essentially like all this stuff just comes back from the past and hits him all of a sudden that all the stuff he didn't know he's not comfortable with it because you know he feels. Uh, and I think this is a theme that actually goes on to Chasing Amy as well, um, where he he obviously feels befuddled and inadequate to some degree because of all these people around him having all this interesting sexual experience, and he's sort of felt left out, and he doesn't know what to do. Uh, he's, he's almost sort of um, old-fashioned and, um, and sort of stuck up about sex, although he's also hypocritical because there's that... Uh, conversation he has early on with his current girlfriend in the film 
where he finds out that she went down on 36 guys before him. Right. <laughs> and Well, and he, when he says the line, you know, well, now every time I kiss you, I'm going to taste 36 of the guys. And again, speaking, Smith gives the, the girl in the situation the right line. Like, well, you slept with 12 other girls, mm-hmm. 11 other girls, and that's not a big deal. But me sucking some dick is, is a big deal to you. It confronts, I mean, the fact that you have the the kind of author avatar, the, the director avatar in Dante kind of, you know, being upset by this, but also you have the other characters kind of responding and going, dude, get over yourself. Um, yeah. And speaks to the fact that there is something more going on. I think that, you know, it's very easy, I think, to read these films. And I think a lot of, you know, Kevin Smith's fans at the time, uh, a lot of the people that kind of fell in love with it, you know, were you know, like, yeah, fuck yeah, man. You know, you shouldn't be with a girl that sucked 37 dicks. And it's like, I don't think that's a that's an opinion that Smith would would agree with. I think no, yeah, the, I think film is kind of about that, and particularly when we get to chasing Amy, which is very explicitly about this issue. Yeah, there's definitely like with the wave of popularity with anyone. Um, there's there's definitely the people who take the wrong message from this film coming out of it, and you know whatever that's fine. Whatever you get out of a movie doesn't really bother me. You know, it's like you get this out of the movie, someone else gets something different out of the movie. That's fine. If you're just entertained on a base level, because this movie has a lot of really funny sex jokes about, uh, sucking 37 dicks and, uh, snowballing and, um, <laughs> and, and fucking a dead guy in the bathroom. Uh, you know, right. <laughs> that's, that's great. Uh, but Smith was definitely going for something a bit deeper in the actual script. And, the dialogue he writes is surprisingly mature and well done. Um, there, there are there are some problems in the film, like, and it just goes with the amateur nature of the film that some of the actors maybe deliver the lines a little stiffly or maybe a little too quickly, so it doesn't yeah. always sound like real conversation. But when they do hit their mark, they hit it really well. Like, I think, I think if you as you watch the film, Dante and Randall, as the actors got more familiar and comfortable with each other their conversations become a bit more naturalistic and sound a lot more real as as they go on absolutely um, it's it's also worth noting i mean smith was writing smith wrote this stuff and uh the actors i you know <laughs> uh, smith even says like when he had to get to the point like in chasing amy he has a long uh monologue um mm-hmm. in a restaurant and he said, you know, I never actually had to, like, say this stuff that I keep writing for people until that point. And once you realize you got to, you know, then you're like, okay, we got to cut some of this. You know, it's, it's a very um, – uh, he definitely got better at kind of mixing the, uh, the loquaciousness of the characters mm-hmm. and his kind of distinctive uh, style and, like, then actually making it sound like stuff that people would say as opposed to uh, – something that philosophy majors would write at each other, you know, yeah. sort of thing. Um, I, I do uh, agree with you that the uh, the acting kind of leaves, some of the acting leaves a little bit to be desired. I mean, mm-hmm. it's certainly not a perfect film. You know, it's worth noting that uh, Brian O'Halloran was and is still a stage actor primarily. Mm-hmm. He uh, trods the boards in, in New Jersey. I mean, he, he, he acts on the stage. He's been in a couple of films, but nothing really serious. Um, Jeff Anderson uh, was not an actor. Like yeah, he didn't even have um, the, uh, and this is where I'd show you what a super geek I am. Um, I actually not only own the original Clerks DVD, I own the 10th anniversary DVD. That's the one I have, yeah. Uh, which includes the uh, original uh, casting sessions yeah, for yeah. these people. And uh, Jeff Anderson didn't even have a, like, he didn't have a, he didn't have a, like, a scene that he did. Like, if you're an actor, you kind of have the scene that's like, mm-hmm. you're going in. And he didn't have one, so he just read 
lines out of the clerk script and was cast based on that. I mean, he was just kind of this guy, like not like a close friend of Kevin Smith's, just somebody Kevin Smith knew and said, okay, if you want to be in the movie, come audition. And he got the role. And I think he's, you know, honestly, he's probably one of the best parts of the movie. Is, is yeah. Brandon, you know? I mean, he, he has a natural knack for it. I mean, Smith was originally going to cast himself in that role, but right. instead he becomes silent Bob and, it only has basically two or three lines in the whole film. <laughs> right, um, right. But uh, yeah, in uh, O'Hallorhan, um, Dante, um, he does a really good job. Like when I'm watching the film, I'm physically cringing at times for, for some of the stuff he's doing. I'm just like, why, dude? Why are you so stupid? Why are you so dumb? But it, it's, it, it's, it's honest too because. You know, you've known people that are that dumb. That are, you know, they've they've just they they haven't matured enough to make a decision in their lives, you know, and especially to make the right decision. He just makes all the wrong decisions all the time. He he makes some really bad decisions. Mm-hmm. I mean, not least because I mean, and here I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of move us into Clerks too a little bit more if okay. you don't mind, um, because we're kind of talking about these together. I mean, Clerks, the original Clerks is definitely you know this is who Dante is the person that. You know, in terms of his situation in life, you know, working at the quick stop, making change, selling cigarettes, et cetera. That's the life that Kevin Smith had before Clerks. And mm-hmm. Clerks 2 is sort of Kevin Smith kind of coming to this stage in his life where he is um, amazingly successful, where he, he has this, this enormous success in terms of his career. He's making movies. He's a millionaire. You know, he's got a, a wife that he loves and all this sort of thing. And um, saying, well, kind of saying who would I have been if I had not, if Clerks had just failed, you know? Yeah. And I, you know, to the degree that the first Clerks is kind of about feeling like you're stuck in a rut in your life. You have no direction in your 20s. Clerks 2 is about that same thing, but now you're in your 30s. And you feel that life is, has left you by, and you're like, well, is this all there is to life? Is this all, yeah. you know, is this, is this what it is? And uh, I think you and I can both, and I think a lot of people in, in you know, the economy, I mean, it's, it, this movie, Clerks 2 was made in 2006, and the economy created in 08, but I think that a lot of people, like, looking at that can definitely see the uh, the economic conditions where, you know, you, you graduate from college, maybe, or you don't go to college, and you're trying to get a job, and you're, you're scraped by, and, and feeling like, man, is this... Wasn't there something else I could be doing with my life than than, mm-hmm. uh, than slinging burgers? I think Clerks Two speaks really honestly to that feeling of being at an age where you feel like you know I could be I should you know I if I was going to do something I would have done it by now and then not having done it. So yeah. uh, I don't know. Moving on to Clerks Two, not to mm-hmm. not to try to control the podcast, but um, any any thoughts to that or anything else about Clerks Two? Yeah, um, I think Clerks 2, in a lot of ways, even works better than Clerks 1. Um, I mean, you, you, you compared the two films, like I watched them back-to-back. Uh, I rewatched them back-to-back today. I, I watched them a bit earlier in the week, just sort of casually, but I sort of watched them seriously today. You definitely see Kevin Smith as a filmmaker, how much he's matured, where his, st- his style hasn't necessarily changed a whole lot, but he's just more competent in the stuff he was doing in Clerks to begin with. One of the um, differences is that it, uh, starting with Dogma, he had a, a professional cinematographer. Mm-hmm. Um, these, uh, the first three films, Clerks, Morris, and Chasing Amy, he was working with uh, Dave Klein, who was just a friend of his that he met in, uh, when he did his uh, two-thirds of film school thing in Toronto. Yeah. Um, just a guy he knew, basically, who was enough of a cinematographer to be able to... But um, 
starting with Dogma, he actually had a professional uh, DP in that you see a dramatic difference, particularly with uh, James L. Wall straight back forward. I mean, his films look like films yeah. um, at that point. Uh, just because he's got a professional DP. Um, anyway, not to interrupt, but yeah. um, that's a lot of the visual difference right there. Yeah, so I mean, this this feels um, this feels like a more in the vein of uh, Jay and Silent Bob. You know, um, Dante finds himself in the same situation he was in Clerks. I mean, um, he, again, he's juggling two uh, different women, and I mean, in, in a way, Dante has not matured at all. Like he he has not prog- progressed at all from Clerks. I mean, he's he's still the same guy. He's still got the same problems. He's still takes things the wrong way and makes the wrong decisions. I mean, he's having, he, he had a one night stand with Rosario Dawson's character. In the, <laughs> because who wouldn't? Yeah, who wouldn't? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> they Rosario make, Dawson is one of my favorite, uh, just visual stunning actresses of all time. Um, so uh, they, uh, the bouncing titty scenes in the uh, the dancing to uh, yeah. you know, Michael Jackson is definitely uh, one of those things. Uh, they highlight make, of uh, cinema for me. They, they make they make a pretty good uh, pretty good uh, knowing reference to that too, like how they're talking about how she she likes him even though he's basically a fugly chud, as they say right. in the movie. Um, you know. They uh, call him a chud like four times, I think. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> even they even call his unborn baby a chud. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He's fucking chud of a kid over there, man. You know. Yeah. So 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 he's still. I mean, he hasn't changed. Randall hasn't changed either. But Randall's content in not changing as long as he's got his best friend with him. Right. Um, and then that's that's the real that's the real conflict in the movie because uh, Dante's going to let himself get swept away in this new life with uh, Jim Swalbeck's uh, character, uh, Kevin Smith's real life wife, um, where he's going to go to Florida. He's going to run a car wash. He's going to get a house given to them by her rich parents and all this other stuff. <laughs> Again, tropes that we remember from Malibu bikini shop, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, uh, I mean, this is like a recurring trope, the, Oh, I'm going to go marry this girl that I don't really care about. You know, I mean, and her daddy's going to give me, going to set up my life and I'm going to have a comfortable life or I can go be with the hot fun girl that I actually like only in this case, you know, again, just kind of talking about like the sex comedy tropes, you know, in the Malibu bikini shop, the whole point is, well, this girl's really hot and she looks good in a bikini. Whereas I think what Kevin Smith does is he kind of takes that and kind of put grounds in reality. This is a girl who will like sit and talk about ass to mouth with you. Yeah. Who you actually like have chemistry with and like spending time with who you paint her nails in her office when mm-hmm. she should be working. I mean, my God, this is, uh, you know, he paints his other girlfriend's nails in, in uh, Clerks. Yeah. Um, so many re- repeated motifs. But uh, actually, you know, puts forward the idea that, like, actually having things in common with this person is a good thing, you know. Yeah. Um, which I think is interesting if you look at it as a trope, um, as, a, as, you know, Kevin Smith kind of tweaking that trope of, like, okay, you don't get to be with the, the boss's daughter or whatever go be with this girl you actually like. Um, yeah, because uh, Schwalbach's character, I mean, and they don't they don't treat her character like a one-dimensional just caricature either. I mean, she's obviously a woman with feelings. She obviously actually does care about Randall, and she wants to sweep him up in this life and everything, and uh, what happens to her is unfair as well. Oh, um, absolutely. I mean, she, she is cheated on by her fiancé with this woman he works with, you know, at work. You know, they, they got drunk and they fucked. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then he breaks, he doesn't even have the balls to break up with her. You know, honestly, he just, yeah. you know, it kind of works out. I mean, you know, definitely. I mean, I think that uh, Jennifer Schwalbach's character is portrayed as a kind of an unpleasant person in general, just not, mm-hmm. not like someone that, but I think she gets her moment and she gets her, I mean, she, she is definitely wronged in the film and she is right, right. to, uh, behave the way she does towards the end of the film, I think. Yeah, you know? well, well, they uh, Rosario Dawson, Dawson's character makes mention that um, she's the kind of girl who wouldn't have paid attention to uh, Dante in high school. Uh, she's she's just a person who's probably been with uh, enough uh, to throw back to another character in the View Askewiverse, the Rick Darrises of the world. She's probably been <laughs> with enough of them in her time where she's finally realized that, hey, I, I need to... I need to find myself a guy who's going to appreciate me and, you know, actually remember the blonde girl in the van. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I kind of think like this is Jennifer Schwabeck here is kind of that character all grown up. Like she, because she's with Dugan and uh, the blonde girl in the van, she's with Dugan. Right. And Dugan and Rick Darius are definitely, you know, it's the same trope. Right. (laughs) In fact, when we were talking about Dugan, I kept wanting to call him Rick Darius. It was just a moment I had to force myself not to. But, you know, you, you talk about, uh, you know, she was with this guy. I mean, you can kind of imagine her backstory. She's kind of with this guy for a while. Mm-hmm. He doesn't treat her very well. Her looks start to fade. Maybe she gets a little bit older. She moves on and she, you know, she says, oh, there's this guy who will just marry me and I can be with this person and I can have this picturesque life, I guess. And, you know, I don't really care what he has to say, but I mean, I guess I like him well enough to be with yeah. him. Um, you know, we don't really get the backstory of how they met and who they, you know, how they became a couple or anything. But, you know, it's not hard to envision, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I grew up in a small town, I, you know, well, you know, I know everybody. You kind of get the, the feeling of like, you know, oh, this is just plenty of the people that I know who are in couples in my hometown are people who just kind of fell into it. One yeah, day, you know? no, that's that's the thing. Um, the relationships in these films, they feel like real relationships like they feel like the kind of thing you see all the time so it's and of course when bad things happen in these relationships like uh jennifer schwalbach's character being wronged um it, it sucks and she's not perfect or anything but it feels like a real moment rather than just something that has to move the story along you know it right. it, it, it feels like if, if it feels realistic to me because shit like that happens to people all the time so i mean there's definitely a cartoony element to this and i think that you know, most obviously you can talk about... Um, when he drops a musical number into the middle of the film? Well, <laughs> there's definitely that. I mean, that's that's just straight-up fantasy sequence, yeah. you know. Um, you know I, but I'm thinking in terms of the uh, Elias character in Clerks yeah. 2, um, who is, you know, this kind of caricature of, uh, you know, kind of fundamentalist Christian... Uh, upbringing, uh, but I've known people like that. I grew up in Alabama. Mm-hmm. I, I've known. I mean, I grew up with people exactly like that. Um, oh so, yeah, we, we've got um, we've got a large contingent of both uh, Mennonites and Mormons, sure, and Jehovah's Witnesses here in Nova Scotia. So I encounter these people on a daily basis, almost. <laughs> I mean, and you, you, you know, it, it is kind of a loving ribbing, you know, kind of. Mm-hmm. A, to some degree, you know, because he's not a bad kid. He's just kind of naive and a little blinkered, and he's working with these these crazy uh, characters. And but he but he he's accepted as one of them. Like they they kind of josh back and forth. Um, but yeah. you kind of see that he's kind of got this uh, cartoony response to the to the donkey show. 
um, <laughs> which we uh, we haven't we got to mention the donkey show at yeah. some point. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the pillow pants moment as well. I mean, yeah, it, oh. there's definitely a cartoony element, but it's also played in a way that you kind of buy it as like, okay, it's in this cartoon universe, but it isn't so far gone that there isn't like a real like core to this character. Like you still well, kind of buy it as the, the way I think about it. Have you ever seen the, the Kevin Smith, um, Kevin Smith's uh, sort of clerks cartoon? Have you ever seen? Oh yeah. I was actually going to ask you if you'd seen the, uh, if you'd seen the anime of the series. Yeah. It, it seems like some of that, some of the way that that went sort of bleeds into clerks too. So you get a, more of a mixture of the reality and the sort of surreal uh, cartoony elements right. sort of come out that way. And yeah, it, like Elias' character is is much more lends more to the um, to the cartoon than than he would like he he wouldn't fit at all in in Clerks one at least at least not in in the way he's portrayed in Clerks two. Right. Um, well, and Chasing Amy as well. I mean, we're, you know, Clerks and Chasing Amy are a little bit more the kind of okay, this is the real world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of a comic distillation, whereas. The other films in the VS universe are much more kind of pushed towards this kind of straight up comedy, comedy universe kind of thing. Uh, particularly when you talk about Mallrats and Dance uh, Ball Straight Back, which is I mean just straight up cartoon. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, so it is it is interesting. Like you know, you feel like you watch all these if you watch all five films in order, they do exist in different universes. Just you know, kind of yeah, they, they influence each other, but you you definitely can't say that. Uh, Mallrats and Chasing Amy and Clark's Two follow directly from one another. They just kind of like bleed into one to a different. Although, to some although the interesting thing is, Mallrats is set a day before Clerks. Right, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I like I like the Elias character though. Uh, uh, very entertaining. You get all the sort of best moments because everyone basically riffs off him, right? All the characters are basically making fun of him or standing up for him, depending on the situation, you know. And it were and and I mean yeah he is he is that sort of fundamentalist Christian character that it would be easy to just really take a dump on but he treats him with uh, an amount of respect uh, Smith does I mean I mean Smith comes from a Catholic background he's not necessarily a practicing Catholic anymore but he under he he sort of understands that mindset and where where that well, sort of Smith is Smith is definitely religious I mean he yeah. is. He- absolutely a religious man was at this time, but also kind of understood the foibles of, of religion. I mean, you know, if you ask him Smith, are you Catholic? He is absolutely a Catholic. He, he thanks God in the credits of every one of his movies. I mean, you know, like, um, you know, there's no question that Kevin Smith is, is overtly religious. Um, but in a way that is not being an asshole about it, which, you know, um, makes it, makes it, uh, much more uh, reasonable, at least to, yeah, evil atheist to me, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> Want to talk about the donkey show? Yeah, let's talk about the donkey show. What's what are your initial <laughs> thoughts on the, on Kinky uh, Kelly and the sexy stud? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna say Kelly can be a girl's name, can it be a boy's name too. Hey, <laughs> hey, you know that, uh, you know, man, what what a performance! Just what a performance! Um, it's. Mm. I love that he uh, he actually references Bachelor Party, which I think was the first time any yeah. ever heard of this concept. A donkey show? Are you serious? You know, <laughs> um, and then in, in classic Kevin Smith uh, thing, you know, he, he twists it. It's not like a hot chick with a get a fuck a donkey. It's a it's an ass. It's and uh, and it's donkey. You know, um, uh, wow, what a what a what a 
just what a scene to have in a movie. Um, I don't mm. remember if I don't know if you remember the controversy about this. I think it's Sundance. Uh, the uh, conservative Christian movie critic Michael Medved uh, yeah, yeah. actually uh, was watching this film. Got three quarters of the way through the donkey scene. The like the donkey is first shown on screen, and he just throws up his hands and walks out. Like, all right, I'm done. <laughs> Yells it as loud as he can. We're, I'm out of here. <laughs> That's what made he walks me out leave. of the movie theater. <laughs> yeah, that, that like that was the moment. Like, all right, I'm done. I cannot sit here sit here anymore. Oh man, um, it's amazing. Uh, you know, and it's it, it's funny. Like for a movie with a donkey show. It, as part of the like climax of the film, it's such a sweet film. It's mm-hmm. such a such a sweet you know it has this emotional core. It has this you know it uses the donkey show as the moment where the two main characters profess their love for one another. And you know yeah. in the jail, you know you kind of get the the big cathartic moment between the two friends and the you know this kind of long uh, commentary on that. So I think it's it's interesting that you know Kevin Smith is is always kind of courted controversy and courted. Uh, raunchiness, but really at, at their core, these films, all three of them are, are very earnest um, yeah. about the about the, the feelings they have uh, towards their character. Yeah, um, the, uh, the Donkey Show, like, the interesting thing I thought is, like, when Roder- Rosario Dawson comes in, her character comes in, and, hey, she wants to stay and watch this, and it's like, yeah. <laughs> She's like, when am I ever going to get a chance to see this again? Like, like you, you immediately get, like, you know... Yeah, and, and Rosario like, Dawson, like one of not only one of the most beautiful women in the world, but a like rising star at that point. Yeah, you know, you know and it did this movie where she's saying things like "ass to mouth." You know, I mean, I, I think that was you know on the commentary, Kevin Smith was like talking about casting Rosario Dawson. He's like, I never thought that she would say yes because, like, you know, come on, you stupid idiot, like, why would? It? But she was game for everything. Apparently, yeah. she, she was down. Um, she was the original choice to play Mary and Zach and Mary make a porno. Um, oh, really? And I think. I mean, as much as I love um, Elizabeth, what's her name? Uh, Banks. Banks, yes. Yeah. I haven't want to say Elizabeth Shue, but that's wrong. Um, Elizabeth, <laughs> as much as I love Elizabeth Banks, uh, Rosario Dawson would have made that film even better. Yeah, um, I'd agree. Yeah. But um, yeah, Rosario Dawson, just great <laughs> in everything. I do love her here. I love that she immediately is, she feels like a part of this world. Um, yeah. And you get this immediate relationship, you know, between her and the other people in the, in the movie. Um, you know, I, I think you know, one thing that you can, you know, we don't give enough credit to Kevin Smith for actually having these really interesting female characters in his movies. Cause we usually think about the, the guy with the backwards hat making jokes. Um, yeah. Clerks two is a, one of those movies that kind of speaks to me on a, on a personal level, just cause of where I was when I saw it the first time. I think it, it's held up pretty well. I don't think that it, it feels as, uh, as much a, a, uh, important movie in the way that I think both clerks mm-hmm. and kind of feel important still um but i think it's it's a lot of fun and i i would definitely recommend it especially i mean if you're a fan of kevin smith's movies you should have i mean this is probably already yeah. on the dvd shelf so definitely uh Clerk, clerks 2 um as, as much as i uh love the original clerks clerks 2 is the one i pop in more often if i just want to really laugh like yeah because <laughs> it, it's got it's got it's definitely got more laughs it's that cartoony element right. so it works uh-huh. better and uh, they're talking about Transformers movies at the time, you know, mm-hmm. in the film. Uh, at the time, the Transformers franchise was still in pre-production. They had not, like, Kevin Smith 
put his finger on how stupid the Transformers franchise is going to be before <laughs> it even premiered, like, uh, yeah. which I think is always a uh, classic. Now, it's also like uh, there are extended uh, bits about the Lord of the Rings, yeah, um, which was like that huge franchise at the time, and now that it's all been tarnished by you know three Hobbit movies, <laughs> I think we've now, <laughs> you know, interesting how how it definitely feels like a 2006 movie in this very uh, uh, it's definitely made in a particular place in time and it, it really yeah. feels like a part of that place in time yeah anything else you had to say about clerks too uh, the only other thing I'll say is there's no way four people are going to run a fast food restaurant <laughs> where 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 is the night shift because there's no way four people work all day at a fast food restaurant it just you doesn't know, happen Looking at looking at like the uh, traffic patterns in that restaurant, and looking at like how like they're closing, like it's barely getting dark, and they're mm-hmm. like, "Yeah, come back in an hour, we'll be closed up." Like this restaurant must close at like seven. I kind of get the feeling this is in like the shittiest neighborhood ever. It must be a yeah. fucking ghost town, man. <laughs> I mean, well, and and again, speaks to uh, you know suburban New Jersey yeah. in two thousand six. You know, I I can only imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> this probably isn't all that unrealistic. Um, in fact, yeah. if you if you look at the um, like the play the playground, um, this is one of those details that they uh, mention in the commentary that I didn't notice until they mention it. But uh, if you the slide literally comes down into a parking spot, like that's how <laughs> shitty this uh, restaurant is supposed to be. That it yeah. just like, this, like you like you would slide down the slide and you'd go into a parking spot. That's how oh, that's how bad this. I didn't even notice that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's such there there's so many little details. Um, you know, and again, comparing Clerks and Clerks Two, you see like the difference that thirteen years makes between the um, we're working in this little independently owned shitty video store and Quick Stop to oh, and now we work in this corporatized fast food place with like Beanie Babies on the uh, cash register. And, uh, yeah. Also, Movies was a uh, carryover from uh, Dogma, obviously. Yeah. And the whole yeah. reason that Movies existed was so they could do the Golden Calf reference. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, kind of tells you what Kevin Smith thinks about global capitalism, maybe. <laughs> um, we'll leave that there for now. Uh, so I guess we can move on to Chasing Amy. And um, this was 1996. 1990- Seven, and this was after Mallrats, which sort of critically tanked for uh, Smith. So he went to a much more uh, sort of personal, um, much more mature route, I guess. Uh, th- this one stars Ben Affleck as Holden McNeil, Joey Lauren Adams as Alyssa Jones, Jason Lee as Banky Edwards, uh, Dwight uh, Ewell as Hooper X, and of course, you got Jay and Silent Bob in this one as well. They basically make an appearance and everything. And this is about uh, Ben Affleck's character. Um, he is a comic book artist, actually. Uh, so is Jason Lee and Joey Lauren Adams. Him and uh, Jason Lee's character, they're best friends, and they have the Blunt Man and Chronic comic book, which is based on the uh, real life exploits of Jay and Silent Bob to a certain degree. And they become very popular with it. And essentially, uh, the circles they run in, Affleck's character is introduced to uh, Joey Lauren Adams' character, Alyssa Jones, and he falls in love with her. Very quickly falls in love with her. But to his uh, chagrin, she is a lesbian. And may or may not have the same feelings for him. And the movie is essentially about his uh, sort of coming to terms with uh, the idea of being in love with her and to a certain extent, her coming to terms with whether she can actually be uh, in love with a heterosexual male. And, uh, yeah, I don't know if, if I want to go too much more in depth right now on the... I think that's 
generally the plot structure of the film. Well, that's uh, certainly the that's certainly the tagline. Like that's that's kind of how the movie is sold. Yeah, um, that's certainly kind of the first third of the film, or the first kind of the setup. Chasing Amy is one of those. I think again, looking back at it now, it feels very. <laughs> again, it just feels like a regular movie today. Whereas in '97, mm-hmm. it really kind of felt like wow, they're talking about this shit like on camera, you know? Um, I think politically you can kind of, I mean, today, I mean, you show this to like queer people today and not in context. I think it feels dated, Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it also um, speaks to uh, certain things in this uh, community that are, that are kind of issues even today. In particular, I think that, you know, the film was kind of sold. I mean, Alyssa Jones is, is a lesbian quote unquote in the movie. Mm -hmm. She's kind of, portrayed as a lesbian but um in reality she's 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 i don't know how she would self-identify if you were to ask the character you know in 2015 yeah but, um she's pretty clearly bisexual queer yeah somewhere on that spectrum um she was you know kind of living as a lesbian she was living in a relationship in relationships with women exclusively um but i think that's the that's kind of the background that you get i think that this film gets kind of unfairly said, oh, this is the story about a lesbian who learns to love Dick. And no, that's not the story at all. This is the story of an experimental girl who dated a bunch of asshole guys in high school in fucking suburban New Jersey who, you know, were probably not the greatest guys and then found out, you know, hey, maybe I'll go date girls instead because I'm attracted to both and uh, found a community that embraced her. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to speak to, to that experience, certainly, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but again, this kind of goes back to the idea that the way that the movie is kind of perceived in popular culture is, is not really the movie that, that mm-hmm. Kenneth wrote and directed. Um, I think that this is really Alyssa Jones's story, um, yeah. We're just seeing it through Holden McNeil's eyes. We're seeing it through his through his perspective. But it's her, you know, falling in love with him as much as it's his falling in love with her. And I think the story that we don't get to see, except for in one scene, is how she is perceived by her community. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, we we get to see that one scene, but I think that that's really a much more. Um, that would have been another side of the story that I, I wish that if we'd had another twenty minutes in this movie, I think that I would have loved to have seen a lot more of that. Um, there's a deleted scene with Ileana Douglas was actually like this uh, character who sees Holden McNeil coming into Alyssa Jones's place and um, basically tells him to go fuck himself because you're never going to get with, she's a lesbian. You're never going to be able to get with her. And so the uh, policing of Alyssa Jones's sexuality by the, um, by some of the people in her life is a, is another thing that's kind of under the surface of this film. Again, as long as talking about sexuality and sex comedies, I mean, that's a really important part of the film that people don't talk about a lot. Well, a lot of the sort of broad criticism I saw of this film was um, people said, you know, even if they were giving positive criticism of the film, they were still saying that it felt like there was like a lot of generalization and sort of uh, naivete of the sort of uh, homosexual uh, culture in general. And I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think maybe there's not enough of it on screen where it's fleshed yeah. out to to the degree it should be. But there, there are some pretty vivid hints at discrimination and actual depth, you know, like actually exploring uh, how uh, members of that culture are treated within their own circles. I mean, Reference again back to uh, Alyssa Jones, the way she's treated by her friends when she says she's she reveals she's dating Holden. But also there's the uh, what's his name the the black uh, homosexual 
yeah, um, he makes mention of how he is a minority within a minority. Uh, yep. You know, he, he, he talks about it even more. And he, uh, I find it interesting how he play, he has to play up being a black well, militant. He's, he's playing two roles, and essentially. Yeah. He's playing the, I'm the militant black guy. This is what I do for my profession. I have to hate Whitey in order to sell my independent comic books. Yeah, which is a legitimate thing that, like, especially in the late '90s, you know, the the comic book world, you you were first starting to see these uh, people of color, the you know the the kind of um, you know the minority voices were starting to kind of enter comics. But certainly, as you see with you know last year the Gamergate thing, and you see the comic book world today, twenty years later, we're not really much better um, in terms mm. of actually like embracing these other voices. Um, and there's still this sense of trying to keep them out. So um, the idea of like playing to this community of people that will buy your books and then playing up the controversy to get your name in the headlines was absolutely like a real thing, you know? Yeah. Um, I think they are kind of playing it for last year and they're playing it as this kind of overt comedic bit. Um, but I certainly understand why he would want to play that role. But then in his personal life, he's also playing the kind of mincing gay stereotype, which you can see is performative in the same way, just mm-hmm. for a different, just for the audience of, of the men he wants to sleep with. Yeah. Um, also, you know, you kind of, you know, in the in the scene in the um, CD shop, which is another sign this was made in the nineties. There's a CD <laughs> shop, um, but uh, the scene in the CD shop, uh, you know, he even says, you know, I I play with the expectations of what the men who want to sleep with me think I'm going to be like. Um, this is this is a man who, you know, you get it in glimpses. I mean, ultimately, I think what what people are criticizing, and I think. I mean, rightfully so, is this is a, a straight, you know, cisgendered white man telling the stories of gay people mm-hmm. to some degree, um, which is which is a legitimate criticism, but it's also, it's not the story of the, of, it is the story of the white cisette guy, the cisette straight guy, mm. coming into contact with these subcultures. The minority voices are given, they are given strong voices. They are not fantasy figures for the, for the uh, you know, and they're not, you know, the, the kind of wise Negro character. You know, you don't, yeah. you don't get that sense of, you know, oh, he, you know, Hooper has his own life. He has his own perspective. He is not, he's friends with Holden, but he's not, you know, they're just to solve Holden's problems. He's doing his own thing. Yeah, um, this, isn't, this, uh, oh, sorry, this isn't yeah. this isn't Will Smith and Ben Affleck. This isn't this isn't this course. isn't. Uh, no, that was Matt Damon. Uh, oh, this Matt Damon. Yeah, this isn't Bagger Vance. No, not at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, no, I I think that uh, there are. I absolutely love seeing uh, minority voices uh, written and directed by minority voices. I think those are really. Important films. I think that um, we should probably do a, um, you know, a LGBT sex comedy at some point in this uh, series. I'm gonna try to find a good one, and, and maybe we'll we'll do Kissing Jessica Stein or something like that. Um, yeah. yeah, a fun one. But I was thinking about it while I was watching Chasing Amy. I'm like, we should probably do that. Um, just to kind of put that put that one more thing in there. But um, I think that I like seeing the other voices. I like seeing other voices written and directed by those by minority voices. Mm-hmm. But I also think again in 1997, this is this feels a lot more radical than it does today, um, because in 90s, you know, that was before there was a willing grace. That was before you know. Now we have this expectation that we're going to see these kind of voices in cinema. Um, I mean, there just aren't that many movies made in this time period that even had gay people in them, yeah. unless it was made specifically for a gay audience. And I and I think that that is significant. Kevin Smith uh, used to do these. Uh, uh, Q and A's at college campuses, um, and uh, the first three or four of them, they ended up making into uh, DVD releases. Um, an evening yeah. with Kevin Smith, 
they get increasingly shaggy and kind of turn into like shaggy dog podcasts towards the <laughs> end there. Um, but the first one is, is particularly good. I think there's a lot of really great stuff in it. Um, and he's actually uh, confronted by a, a young girl who is a lesbian, um, uh, who's maybe 19 or 20. Uh, and she says, I, I feel like that this movie just says a lesbian just needs a deep dicking and she'll be mm-hmm. cured of her lesbian yeah. nature. And I understand why people would feel that way. I would certainly never take that away from anyone. I don't think that's what Kevin Smith is trying to say, but he also makes the, you know, people ask him, why do you put gay shit in your movies? And he's like, well, my brother's gay. And my brother always told me, you know, I never get to see myself on screen. And so I try to put that in there where I can. Yeah. And I think he had to fight even to put the little bit that he could put in there, you know, um, and I think, you could blame him a lot more today for for having less of that, but I think you know certainly for the late nineties he's doing a a pretty damn good job um, with this film um, politically speaking. Yeah, um, I agree because he's got Affleck's uh, character in this. He's essentially another version of uh, Dante to quite a degree. I mean, he's he's another guy who just like Dante in the original Clerks, he feels really inadequate when he's when he finally. Uh, finds out about uh, Alyssa's uh, past. Uh, he, he doesn't feel like he can live up to it. And also he's just, he's just really confused. Like he doesn't, he has no real familiarity with uh, the world he sort of entered into. So he doesn't know how to deal with it at all. Like he just makes all the wrong decisions again. Well, just, well he's this, he's this white bread suburban guy. Yeah. From, and, you know, and, and the fact that it's, you know, Red Bank, New Jersey is two hours drive or not even two hours drive, I think, from New York City. And so, you know, growing up there, you kind of grow up in the shadow of this like dark place with all these deviant lifestyles. But you're living in the like the most white bread place in the United States (laughs) in a lot of ways. You know, you know, I was 17 years old when this movie came out. Um, When I saw it the first time, I was probably 17, 18. I saw it on Mm -hmm. video. You know, I'll say that there's certainly this element of, you know, at that time, I definitely kind of saw what Holden's going through and kind of being like, man, there's this girl who's got all this experience and, you know, how am I ever going to live up? And that's essentially what he says. Yeah. And he pushes her away. He, he finds her her behavior toxic to him that he can't understand why she would have had these experiences. But, you know, today I'm completely on Alyssa's side, you know, because yeah. like what right do you have to, to, to judge me for the decisions I made sexually before I met you and like, you need to get over yourself. You fucking mm-hmm. asshole. Like yeah, exactly. um, he makes a lot of bad decisions. You know, again, Smith is using the Holden McNeil character to criticize his audience in a way mm-hmm. um, because there's a lot of his audience who, who identify with Banky and Holden and think that Alyssa is just a pretty girl. Oh yeah. Let's, let's look at her tits, man. You know, like, but you know, Smith is bringing you in there and then he's like slapping you in the face by saying, I'm not going to be your fucking whore. You know, yeah. as, as Alyssa says at the end of the film, uh, which I think again, rewatching that now it's so, I mean, it was uncomfortable to watch it before, but now I watch it and it's, it's, I, that final scene where they're all on the couch. It's pretty, it's pretty. I, jolting. I, I had to like, stop that like three times just to like, okay, I need to like take a break from this scene just <laughs> for a minute. Um, it is so uncomfortable because it is such like, and it keeps cutting back to Alyssa and she's just like, she's sitting there and I'm completely in her shoes because she is just seething with yeah. anger at she's this guy. Like, yeah, don't betraying her, you know? Yeah. She's just like, don't say it. Don't say it. Don't, don't do it. 
don't fucking cross the line. You you you've completely you've missed the point entirely. Yeah. Um, the one little bit of trivia I'm going to throw in here for chasing Amy is uh, mm-hmm. the end of uh, during the scene after the hockey rink scene when they're in the uh, parking lot they're having the argument. Alyssa's talking about her sexual past and she name drops two people, uh, mm-hmm. Shannon yeah. Hamilton and Glenn Cooper. Uh, Shannon Hamilton is Ben Affleck's character in Mallrats, and Glenn Cooper is uh, Joe Lauren Adams' character yeah. in Mallrats. Which I, uh, because she implies that like she and Glenn Cooper slept together, meaning that in the VS universe, there are two Joe Lauren Adams who mm-hmm. got it on together, which, uh, yeah, I, think which is a, I think it's a pleasant image, you know? Which is yeah, something I'd like to see. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she also, she also uh, drops uh, names. Uh, she was friends with both. Uh, Caitlin Bree from Clerks One, who she had a relationship with that involved fisting. Um, And she was also uh, friends with the girl who died in the aneurysm in the the swimming pool. Oh, yeah, Julie Dwyer. Yeah, and uh, her sister is the girl who was writing the book in Mallrats about sexuality yeah yep. first the dish yep first the dish yep so and they make mention of that so, oh, i'm going to see my sister she's coming to visit me or whatever oh the one who wrote the book yeah you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah i missed that detail that's that's yeah now you're right yeah no that's yeah. that's awesome yeah the, all kinds of little uh little little moments like that um uh, also, while we're talking about Rick Darris, the uh, guy who was sitting next to yeah, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, Ben Affleck in the um, hockey rink, yeah. who has the line, like, even I knew what she was going, that's the guy who played Rick Darris. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, always, uh, <laughs> always nice to, to just chart the uh, the connections there. You know, there are so many people in the viewers universe who all look like each other. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, I don't know. I love Chasing Amy. I, I think I like it more now than I did even then. Mm. Um, yeah, this I, is this is only the like the, honestly, this is only the second time I've watched it. Like I watched yeah. it years ago, and when you were recommended for the podcast, I was quite interested in seeing it again. And it even works a lot better now uh, watching it this many years later. Um, there's definitely stuff I picked up in it this time around that I didn't pick up before. I I, I still. When I first watched it, I, I still did get the crux of the story. I I, re- I realized what was going on, but I guess I guess maybe it's just having the context of watching Clerks one and two basically on the same day kind of kind of helped kind of helped inform it a bit better. So yeah, like if you look at all the stuff he's done, it's probably his most maturely written movie. Like it's probably his peak as far as that sort of thing goes. It's definitely his most realistic, grounded one. Um, I mean, even Jay and Silent Bob, when they come into it, they're not playing characters or playing real right. people who are making fun of the idea of what's this bullshit about Snoogans and right. Gucci and all you that. You get shit. the sense that these are the real people that the uh, characters in the other films are based on, you mm. know, much more so than you know that they're not. They don't act like cartoon characters. They they act like real people. Yeah. Um, and Kevin Smith gets a. A long monologue, which kind of explains the the point of the film, and Holden uh, completely misses the point of that story. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't think again, kind of watching it now as an adult, I realize, wow, Holden missed the fucking point of that story. Didn't yeah, he? which was supposed to be, dude, get over yourself. There's this really hot girl who you love dearly and who loves you, and just accept her for who she is. That's the point yeah. of the movie, and um, Holden doesn't get it at all. Yeah. Um, at least he, at least by the end of the film, he realizes it, and supposedly more mature by the end of the film. One more bit of trivia before we uh, right. get done, because I think we're we're wrap. We're I mean, I, I could talk more. I could talk about these movies all night, but uh, yeah. 
the uh, original guy at Miramax who discovered Kevin Smith at a Sundance screening um, is a guy named Robert Hawk, Bob Hawk. Um, mm-hmm. He appears on the uh, Chasing Amy commentary. There's a there's an excellent commentary. One of my all time favorite commentaries to listen to is the commentary on Chasing Amy, uh, which has Smith and, and Ben Affleck and uh, Scott Mosher and a bunch of other guys in there goofing around. And uh, it's it's a great commentary. I've probably listened to that commentary more than I've actually watched the movie, uh, believe it or not. Um, because it's just that fucking entertaining and informative. But uh, Bob Hawk is on that. He is actually in the movie. Um, he is. He has a bit party. Has a little cameo appearance. If you remember the uh, scene where uh, Hooper is standing behind the bar and calling Holden and convincing him to come out to uh, see uh, Alyssa, uh, there is a uh, an old white man chuckling oh. at a comic. Um, and that is Robert Hawk, uh, who was the guy who originally discovered. Uh, Kevin Smith, and without whom Kevin Smith would not have the career he does. So it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of funny too. This this movie was before Big Lebowski, but it reminds me of that scene with Julianne Moore with uh, David Sewell's plays this sort of weird artistic, right, right, gay guy laughing uncontrollably about <laughs> about weird shit. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's my that's my other little bit of trivia. I'm just gonna throw that in there because awesome. uh, that's that's a bit that people don't necessarily catch. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that's Bob Hawk. To stand right um, yeah. Any other thoughts about Chasing Amy? I, I think this film's probably been overlooked a bit. Um, I think people know Smith for Clerks and Jay and Silent Bob and stuff like that more. And I think that's a shame. This is probably his best written film. It actually tackles some really serious subjects in a serious, more serious manner. It doesn't overlay it with a lot of broad comedy and slapstick and stuff like that. I think people should check it out. It's, it's if you're looking for Kevin Smith's real serious indie movie in the nineties, this is one of those ones. This is one of those ones that stacks up with the sort of other sort of in, independent nineties films. Although I guess this isn't really an independent film at this yeah. point, but yeah, I mean, it was funded by Miramax, but it's definitely yeah. it has that. You know, if you're looking at like quote unquote independent cinema of the '90s, which is you know, it kind of became a genre that even though studios are funding it, you kind of got that particular kind of look and feel. Um, this is one of those highlights. This is really one of those like this is what I would love to see more movies kind of made like this from this kind of perspective. Yeah, and um, it's always nice to see. Um, it's again, you know, I, I love it. I could talk about it all day about all the all the we, all we the might have things. to. Uh... We might have to go back at some point and um, maybe just like talk about Clerks on its own or something like that and really fucking geek out on it or whatever at some point. But, uh, you know, you know what we should do? Commentary, live com. That would be good. Um, I've been sort of um, thinking about trying to get that set up so we could do some commentary. I definitely want to do some with my brother as well, just here right on location. So yeah, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to figure out how to work that out uh, either over Google Plus or Skype or some shit. But, uh, yeah, we'll figure it out. Cool. Awesome. All right. Um, Daniel, tell everyone about your Doctor Who podcast. I have a Doctor Who podcast. If you've been listening to this show, you probably already know about it. But it's uh, I do it with my wife. We talk about Doctor Who, classic and new series. It's called Oi Spaceman, a Doctor Who love story. That's oispaceman.lipson.com. Yeah, and check it out if you want to listen to me over-intellectualize uh, old TV shows. <laughs> um, we are uh, kind of working through companions. Uh, we're in the Tom Baker years. We're going to be there for a little while. When the new series, when Series 9 shows up, we're definitely going to do all those episodes. And um, we're going to hate on Stephen Moffat some. So just <laughs> if uh, people people want to listen to people hate on Stephen Moffat, that's our show pretty much. You know, so. and, and, and speaking of commentaries, your last episode was a 
commentary yeah. episode. Yeah, we did a commentary um, on the Tom Baker's very first episode, uh, Robot, where uh, that was a uh, that was fun to do. It's it's definitely uh, different than what we normally do, where we kind of you know try to condense and get things down. Um, but uh, it was fun, so check that out. People like that. I haven't gotten any feedback on it one way or the other, but people like it. We'll we'll do more of those. That was fun to do. Right on. So if you are uh, interested in finding more of uh, Daniel, Paul, or I's links, um, you can find it in the little trailer that's going to run after here telling where to go to our official Podbean site. Other than that, I totally blanked out that we should be picking some music for the end here. So if you have well, any suggestions... I, for me, the, uh, the answer is, and I thought about this for a while, um, and the only real answer is the Alive the, the song that Joey Lauren Adams sings in uh, the bar. Oh, yeah. Um, and the video, that snippet is on YouTube, so you can rip that cool. pretty easily. Um, With that, uh, that sexy, raspy voice she's got going on there, yeah. And then she uh, makes eyes at a blonde across the room. Yeah. And uh, that blonde was Jason Lee's wife at the time. <laughs> One more bit of trivia for you. So in that moment where she's making out with, uh, with Carmen, the actress there, Jason Lee's across the table. You can just think, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Daniel. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Thanks a lot. See you. This is for that someone special out there. Ready? I'm feeling nothing but all Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. 
for our other episodes, links to Daniel, Paul, and Lee's other stuff, and links to some great podcasts of similar interest, visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can leave us comments on the site or directly email us. We listen and respond to everything. Thank you. Drive through.